Most of how we view history, history comes as we look at the artwork that has been produced portraying historical events. Nowhere is that more true than when looking at the nativity depictions uh, around the birth of Christ through the eyes of artists who, who have drawn or sculpted those events. We can get caught up in the historical accuracy of that artwork and become a little bit cynical because none of so much of that tends not to be as true as the way it was depicted. And yet, there is a rich spiritual devotional power that comes as we enjoy the artwork of nativities and depictions of the Savior's birth and death and resurrection. Let's take a look today, particularly at the nativity scenes that are out there and the kind of devotion that that can inspire in us in our faith journey going forward. And welcome to another Monday morning Book of Mormon class with Kevin Hinckley. Recorded live, we dive deeply and deliberately into this inspired scripture. How far we get in one class depends a lot on the material and the doctrines left for us by ancient prophets. A single chapter may occupy one class or many. Of course, opinions expressed by the teacher or the class members do not constitute official church doctrines. Join us in this adventure and discover the hidden treasures found within its pages. And now, on to the class. All right, so we are uh, welcome to our uh, last class of the uh, semester. Um, and as, as we get started, um, one of the things that I feel bad about is that at this time of year, well, well let, let me back up. Years ago, I had a client of mine who was really struggling with the church. And in fact, he, he left the church for a little while and he's, he's since come back. But one of the things that in the midst of his doubting, he really struggled with church um, art. And he, he was bothered for a long time by what he felt was a dishonest portrayal of the translation of the Book of Mormon, you know, you know the one I'm talking about, where Joseph and Oliver are sitting there at the table in harmony, and Joseph is reading off of the plates, and Oliver is writing, right? And he's in plain view of the plates. And, um, and he said that was, and then when he finds out about the head and the hat and, and, all, and all that kind of stuff, he said, well, that's dishonest. Uh, and, and I've sensed, you know, in hearing from a number of artists, that they say, you know, if we're commissioned to do a piece of artwork and make it historically accurate, we'll do that. But if we're just trying to portray art, we'll take all kinds of liberties uh, to do that because we're trying to hit an emotional chord, an emotional note uh, when we're doing that. So it's frequently going to be inaccurate. Uh, and yet so much, so much of what we know about history is coming from art. These days it's coming from movies. Um, and... And, prob and the farther back into antiquity you go, when we're looking at artwork for all of these things, the, the less accurate is the artwork, but it still gives, there, there's still value to it along the way, okay? So, um, the, the probably few things, <laughs> a few things uh, that have caused more, well, not misunderstanding, but inaccuracies is the nativity. Everything about the nativity, and I am probably just as bad as anybody at saying, we will now tell the true story of the narrative from the historian's point of view, and we're going to point out uh, brazenly all of the inaccuracy about the, the European view of the nativity. <laughs> um, but so, so we're going to get, so today I want to you know, we'll give brief mention quickly about maybe what things about this might be uh, a little inaccurate. But at the same time, I also want 
to recognize that our, our stories in the Gospels about the Nativity and our artwork about the Nativity and our living Nativity scenes and our rec recreations of Journey to Bethlehem and all the things that we do and our Christmas trees and everything is more about evoking a sense of devotion and awe and if we can get past some of the historical things so we don't get hung up on that, where it ruins the nativity for us. Because we know it's all inaccurate. <laughs> we do. We know. Uh, so, so, for instance, uh, just real quickly, uh, more, more than likely, as we were talking about uh, last time, uh, as Joseph and Mary are coming down from the north, uh, Joseph still has a lot of family in and around Bethlehem. That would have been his ancestral home. It was his family probably several, several generations back that had moved up to Nazareth. But originally, because they were from Judah, they were from down in this area. So he had a family. Okay? So if he's going to come down with his pregnant wife and stay somewhere, he's, who's he staying with? Family. And, and so he's going to get to the family. And whatever that census thing was that was going on, we're still not quite sure what the census thing was. Uh, they're going to stay in a home, at, but there's no room for them in the guest inn, the, the guest room, the Catanana. What? There's not 2,000 hotel rooms? No, there's not. Right. And it, it's up there. And so it was the, the inn was mistranslated by the King James Version. And, you know, and so... No, that was, that was, there was no room for them in the guest inn. So they're going to probably stay downstairs, and she could probably give birth in the living room. And at the back of the living room is an area for the animals on the other side so they don't get robbed by robbers in the middle of the night. So there's a dividing line between the back side and the front side, and in between that is going to be the feeding trough, which would be the manger. Okay? All right, so... Uh, we, so we know that, and certainly the uh, wise man, and we talked about the wise man just a second. Um, one other aspect of this that I think is interesting. Uh, so, so by the way, where did we get the idea that they stayed in a cave or in a stable? <sighs> yes, but where did those come from? Pro uh, about... Uh, 150 AD, uh, you've got a, a couple of fanciful poets, uh, writers, uh, Justinian was involved in this thing, where they had this wonderful story about Mary and Joseph, and they don't quite make it, and so they, they stay, they, they make it to a cave, and they stay there, and Joseph goes to get some help, and this lady comes with a withered hand, and she helps Mary deliver the baby, but as the baby comes out, he heals uh, the woman's withered hand. You know, there's just all of these great stories about these things that cause, but we're going to talk about the devotion of that, the early saints in the first couple of hundred years. That meant something to them. And even without some of the accuracy to them, the, they were looking for devotion. Now, does that false devotion? I know you can do with it as yeah, you will. Like the thing about the sugar, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like we're going to believe in that stuff. It, it's like the the moment that at uh, we've talked about this that as when Cindy and I were married, we're standing in front of the Salt Lake Temple doors and. And I turn to her lovingly and I say, you know, of course, that only one person will open this door. <laughs> yes, she looks back at me lovingly, you know. And, uh, yes, only the Savior will do this at the second coming. Yes, that's so wonderful. And then we're, what, about three years into our marriage when we find out. No, I used to use that all the time. And, <laughs> and I've stood on the other side of that door and... and uh, uh, Lorenzo Snow's wife used to have a office just barely on the other side of the door. She'd go back and forth through the door all day long. <laughs> okay. Well, we have these faith-promoting rumors that, that we like. But so, so part of it was this kind of devotional kind of feeling that you get with that. Um, but let me, add, let me add one other piece to this. Uh, one of our uh, guides in Israel, Mahmoud, uh, who is a uh, Bedouin chieftain. Uh, Mahmoud, uh, Bedouins are the traveling people, the Arabs that travel in the tents and stuff like that. And he's kind of a chieftain over several thousand uh, families. Uh, 
But uh, in, I pinned down Mahmoud uh, a year or so ago, and I said, let me ask you something. Because we were getting ready to go to Bethlehem. <laughs> and I said, if shepherds were out there living, they were living kind of a Bedouin lifestyle. I mean, and we know they're probably Levite lineage. It's probably the temple flock. Uh, for that, all, all that's true. But they were living Bedouin lifestyle. I said, tell me something. If, if Bedouin shepherds had seen what they had seen, and then they find the family <laughs> either in a dirty stable or they find them in a cave, what would those shepherds do? And you can guess what his response was take them home. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, they'd be like, scoop those guys up and take them back to their tents where our wives would take care of them and love on them and, and suckle the baby and, and all that. There was no way that shepherds would lead them in this kind of setting, A, because they would do that with anybody. B, on top of that, they would certainly do that if, if what the angels were telling them was true. They certainly wouldn't leave them in dire straits and then go home. <laughs> they would have immediately taken them home. Now, if they felt like they were being well cared for, now they could do what they were charged to do, go out and tell the world uh, what they had seen. Okay? So, yeah, we, we get these, these kind of things. Uh, and certainly the European view of... That's a well cared for view there. Yes, it is. They're actually doing pretty well. And not only that, you can actually see... Almost looks like the dome of the mosque in the background, <laughs> which is <laughs> we're only off by a thousand years. <laughs> okay, um, so all right, so, so so we're getting out we're getting all the inaccuracies out all at once here. So you can give out of our system. Okay, how about how about the wise men? Okay, hold on. Okay, so let let me just. Um, Mike, let, let, let me pick on you for a sec, okay? Let, let me say, for instance, that when we get into third, just as we're getting into third Nephi, we've been listening to Nephi. And Nephi and his brother Lehi uh, are doing all kinds of miraculous things. And one of the things they do is they've heard from Samuel the Lamanite, who says that the coming of Jesus is imminent within the next five years. Okay, now... Um, your ministry is winding to a close. You're about done. You have all of the, you've been given all the plates, including the Leahona. And you've been given the sealing power. And you're about to hand off the ministry. Yes, you're about to hand the ministry off to your son. Now, if all of that is true, and God is saying to you, what would be the wish of your heart? What would you What would you want more than anything? All that to be preserved. Yeah. But you know Jesus is coming. You know where he's coming. You know when he's coming. And you have the Leahona. Check with my wife to see where do I. Would it be okay if? Road trip. Time for a road trip, right? <laughs> I've got, so I've got the Leahona, I've got that. And, and not only that, who else do we know that knows when and where and, who, and how? Samuel. Now, the old traditions of the three wise men were what? How many three wise men? How many wise men? Three. One of them was dark-skinned. Okay, so the three wise men, though... Hold on, don't get, don't get bogged down in factual stuff. <laughs> so so th this, was the, this was what I laid on my, on my uh, gospel doctrine class <laughs> about 10 years ago. And I actually wrote a story to go with it. To, to the front, it's like, okay, I'm just going to fanciful, fancifully speculate. Who were the wise men? <laughs> N Nephi, Lehi, and Samuel. Yeah, uh, with the ability to do that, just kind of having fun with it. Because, in fact, if we look at somebody, look at. <laughs> I'm not saying that this is true. 
I'm just having way too much. It's original with you. Yeah. So, so. Did you tell him that it wasn't true before you told him the story? <laughs> no, not so much. <laughs> that that would be. I will. Uh, could you, could you mock? <laughs> mock, mock on. Mock, mock on. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes, something like that. Because what happens here at the end of uh, no. Look at 14. Angels did appear unto who? Oh, there you go. <laughs> so I just said, okay. You, you were asked the question, where, where is that scripture? What, what book of scripture? It's actually in the Book of Mormon. This is <laughs> it's actually in uh, the end of Helaman. Okay. So, anyway, I just think it was it was kind of fun. Uh, right about halfway through my spiel, uh, if anybody, any of you know Jim Brown, uh, Brother Brown, is like, oh no, you're not going there. <laughs> well, yeah, I sort of am, but it's just speculation. It's just kind of fun. And the sound is distant, and it's coming back up. Okay. Thank you. All right. So anyway, this is so speculation. Yeah. Why you why you look at the theory of where they came from? When we were in Jordan, our local guy there had his own theory on that too. I thought rather Yeah. He he told us that he was one of the Jordanian Christians, a very small sect yeah. in Jordan. Yeah. But he said, I just want to point out to you that Jordan is east of Palestine. East of Bethlehem. Yeah. And he says, at that point in time, gold, frankincense, and myrrh were readily available in Jordan. Especially in Petra. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was believing they were coming from Petra, where there were a lot of astronomers. Uh, so, I, I just think again, when we take a look at the nativity, I guess this is kind of my point. There's a lot of speculation that we can do, but I think, and sometimes we get caught in the weeds on all the speculation, and we miss out on the point of what it's trying to do is trying to talk about the stuff that we do know and the devotion that comes from that. Yeah? I, uh, I was assigned to give a story in the Christmas program 20-some years ago. Yeah? And so I wrote a story that I called The Littlest Shepherd. And he brings a lamb because it was the eighth day for the lamb. Ah, uh, there you go. And, uh, then uh, he comes and sees Jesus and he takes care of the lamb. And great, great story, right? Right. Has nothing to do with truth. <laughs> no, this isn't about truth. Any more than just about the time that she finally gets the baby to go to sleep, this little boy thinks he should present a drum, a drum solo <laughs> for, 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 for the baby. <laughs> no, no, but the drums would just be perfect. That's what little infants want is a little drummer boy. <laughs> okay, so, so let, me tell you, let, let me tell you what is true. Um, a fascinating story. Uh, I read a book by a man by the name of Tom Holland. Tom Holland is a... Uh, very well-respected um, historian, ancient, uh, uh, looking at ancient things. And Tom, Tom is English. He grew up in, in the Church of England. And then he uh, be, did what all good Englishmen do. They go off to college and become agnostic. <laughs> uh, and then he became a historian. And then as he's, as he's going back through history, he is struck by what he calls like the greatest mystery of all, and that is how in the world did Christianity take over the Roman Empire? <laughs> you know, and it was in the process of that, he says, I started to come back to my roots and started to believe some things. But here's, here's part of 
part of what he talks about uh, is that if we're going back into antiquity, uh, he's talking about that moment when, uh, according to legend, uh, Constantine, the emperor, uh, is trying to conquer the rest of the known world, and he looks up into the sky and he sees the, the cross. Okay, it's supposed to be th this moment here. I don't know that the angels were necessarily holding the cross, but he looks up and he sees the cross. And, and he hears a voice that says, under this banner will you conquer the rest of the world, basically. So he, he uh, on his, it's sort of on his deathbed. He converts to Christianity. They put the crosses on their thing and they do a lot of killing with the cross on their shield. Um, but, but now, like, if you go into the, uh, th this is, this is a, uh, a mosaic that hangs in the Hagia Sophia in Turkey in Istanbul uh, and it's, it's pretty impressive you walk into the south nave of this thing and so he's got so you got Mary uh, and she's holding the Christ child uh, she looks like she kind of has a sword here but on one side you have uh, Justinian Justinian and he, no, uh, Constantine presenting the city of Istanbul to the Christ. And there. And on this side, you have Justinian, who's presenting the Hagia Sophia, the great church that you can go and walk through. It's now a mosque. Uh, but anyway, it's like, in essence, they are giving up the Roman Empire and handing it to Christianity. Is, is kind of that thing. And for Tom Holland, the story of how it is that a, uh, a minor usurper, 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 minor usurper, <laughs> in a minor province of the Roman Empire in Judea, who is then crucified like a slave, and they put it down and how, the, how that process via the, the early believers and then Paul and then he's taken out there and how this slowly doesn't die. In fact, it keeps gaining uh, weight and growth. How that slowly gets to this moment when Constantine is willing to say we're going to convert all of the Roman Empire into Christianity and make this our religion. Now we're going to somehow mix Zeus and Jupiter and, and all that into it a bit and Artemis. But Christianity is taking over and he says that there's no way logically from everything that he studied all the way through antiquity and I'm, and, and I'm listening as he's walking us through uh, ancient Assyrians and Greek and stuff like that and he says it just shouldn't have Gods like this don't, th this is not how it works. It just isn't. The Assyrian, for instance, the Assyrian uh, god Mar Marduk, who says he took over the world because he conquered it, and and the and the world was like this may this leviathan, this sea serpent, and he cuts it in half, and from that he creates the worlds. Okay, and so they're saying Marduk created the world out of a divided serpent. Well, when when Jesus comes along, he says, no, God is God. In fact, the Jews, even ahead of that, Job, is going, uh, he, he's going through all of his trials, and what, and what is God saying to him? Can you hold the Leviathan in your hand? <laughs> I can. <laughs> I created it, and I hold it in my hand. So from the Jewish roots of this God who is God, and then Christianity that, that says, and he came as a baby, <laughs> and he was crucified on a tree like a slave, and then it conquers the Roman Empire. He just says that is so crazy. Should not have happened. Completely improbable and does anyway. So, what we can do, though, as we're looking at this, I, I, I realize as you look at how does this happen? So the, the stories that we do know, like we're at Christmas time and we're looking at the stories that we know and tell about his birth. Then in a few months, we'll get to Easter and we'll tell the stories of his death. If you'll take a look at it, the symbolism between 
His birth and his death are really similar in some aspects, almost like bookends. Uh, like here comes his mortal ministry and his birth stories and the symbolism there and his death stories and the symbolism there provide two bookends under which his, mor his mortal uh, ministry happens. Does that make sense? So I want to look at some of the symbols for just a sec uh, and go with me on this. Okay? How about what happens at his birth in terms of light and dark? Especially like in Nephiteville. Light. Okay? All day and dark is vanquished, basically. For three days, right? So we get all of these kinds of things. Um, now, what happens then at his death? It's dark. Now, shouldn't that have been, here comes the resurrection, but when is the dark? At his death. For those three days while, he is do, while he's doing what? He is descending into darkness. He's descending down into that area where he's going to teach those from the time of Noah. So we get the, this vision of when he comes, there's light. And he's going to conquer the dark. And then we get Easter morning when he is returned from that darkness. He's descended below all things. Okay? I love that imagery of the, the light and the dark. Okay? Uh, how, about, how about this one? What role do angels play at his birth? They announce it. They announce it to who? Shepherds. To shepherds. Who else? To Mary. To, Mary, to Joseph. Joseph. To Nephi. To Samuel. Angels are involved everywhere along the way, right? That, that the, the hosts of heaven are, are really involved in announcing that he's coming, okay? What happens at his death? They do. For, for during that darkness, during that final victory that he's doing, absolutely. Okay, but then where are angels involved? Well, in the new world. Yeah? Uh, just uh, for his death? How about any angels in Gethsemane? Yes. Yeah. Okay, just before he's going to descend, right? Okay, and then we're being told that angels were, were really busy in the new world proclaiming that he was coming. Angels are hearkening that it's coming. And then on the other end, we're going to get angels that are going to declare. And so the very last thing that mortals see of Jesus is he ascends into heaven. And then what do they get? Angels saying he's coming back. Why stand you here looking? Yeah, why stand here looking, guys? You know, but angels are declaring, are on both ends of this, that the heavenly hosts on both ends of this bookend are involved in this ministry. Okay? Why is that, do you think? How come angels were so involved? They're God's messengers. They are. To do what? whatever he wants. And to witness, right? And to declare. Okay? Alright? Let me give you another one. Uh, th th this was kind of an interesting one that I hadn't noticed until the last couple of weeks. That his ministry is marked by first of all, a virgin womb. And then when he dies, where is he put? In a virgin tomb. Okay? That he would be the first fruits of Mary, but also the, the first fruits of those that have slept. And then when he dies, where is he going to be placed? In a tomb that has never been used before. He's kind of, kind of put into a. He's going to be the first fruits of those that have come out of that tomb. Okay? 
Good question, but it, it, it's interesting that that the gospel writer puts that in there, that it was one that hadn't been used before. We're just given that information, but you're right. I just think it's interesting. But, but isn't it interesting that also it's never mentioned anywhere through the Book of Mormon or the New Testament about Mary without mentioning that she was a, a virgin. Now, by the way, the... Any other virgin to virgin wombs in the Old Testament? Survival. Any first fruits? Sariah. John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Elizabeth. So those are not. Those are just first firstborn. Those are firstborns, but but in other words, they had never had a baby in there. So we're, we we keep getting these. Kind of different than never having intercourse. Right. Right. But they end up being these virgin. Again, you just get the symbolism, okay? Which I think is just interesting, okay? How about this one? I, I thought this was kind of fun. If you look at mangers, uh, so here's here's a manger. It's going to be a stone manger like that, okay? Uh, now in a and so he's going to be placed there, we're told. Now, when he, when he dies, uh, there, he's going to be put into this tomb. Um, I'm going to jump ahead here so you can see. Because th th there's two parts here. One, he's going to be put into a manger and he's going to be wrapped in swaddling clothes and that will be the sign to the shepherds who, by the way, just needed to come down, probably down through the streets. They could look in. They could look into these houses. They could probably see the one where there's a baby sitting in a manger because you'd, be, you'd look, be looking from the, out, from the road into the outer court. You could probably look right into the house and, and see it. But they're going to see a baby lying in the manger area. Okay. At his death, what will happen, he's, he's going to be put into Joseph's tomb and <coughs> they, would they, they would wrap the body very carefully uh, and then they would put it on one of these little outer tables and how long does it sit there? Three days. Oh, about a year. It'll sit for a long time until the body is completely decayed and, and you're, now you're down to bones. That you're not talking about Jesus right here. Right, there's right. anybody, just first century burial practice. You're going to wrap them, you're going to lay them on this little shelf area inside, uh, and, then, and then what happens if you're a little bit wealthier, then what happens after a year, you come back, the flesh is all decayed away, you're going to take the bones, you're going to kind of carefully fold the bones together, and you're going to put them. in the ossuary. Okay, so it's going to go in here. Now, if you go back a couple of centuries, more in the Iron Age kind of thing, they would, uh, they would take all the, they would let them sit there, they let them decay, then done, and then they're going to pick up the bones and they're going to do what? Throw them in the back with the bones of their fathers. All the bones of the fathers are all there. Okay? Th th think of Ezekiel and the, and the dry bones that kind of start rising up and start getting flesh on them again. That's kind of, that would have been an area. Well, didn't we get that with one of the uh, Indiana Jones movies where they had the, the back area and lots of, lots of bones stuff? Anyway, okay. But, it, it, but in some ways, the manger does look a lot like an ossuary. I mean, there, you, you see these similarities on both ends of this. Okay. Um, okay. Any other similarities you can think between birth and death? I, I just think that's. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to maybe just disagree. We're not disagreeing. Robert Frost was once asked about symbolism in his, his, his uh, poetry. Right. And sometimes we see symbolism. Where there was no symbolism. Oh, there's no question. And there's no question. And I wonder if some of these correlations are. Yeah. They're not symbolism. I, I agree with that. Yeah. So I say you see, the, you see the similarities, 
and some are going to connect. Some I think are intentional. It is interesting that we're intentionally told over and over about a virgin birth, and I think that harks back to some of the Old Testament patriarchs. Uh, but some of the others may be a little lame. Yeah. Oh, when we're born into this life, but then when we die, we're kind of born into the next life. It's kind of like doorways. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah. The other correlation I've heard is at birth there's water and blood, and at death, when they put the sword in his side, there was blood and water. Yeah. What about his birth? Well, birth is accompanied by blood, blood and water, right? So there's blood and water. Yeah, when we talk about that he was that he died with the sacrificing blood, isn't it interesting that the first one to sacrifice blood to, to get Jesus his was Mary, which I think is really really kind of interesting. And then you have your bag of water too. Yeah. So so in other words, if you if you start seeing for, for me, however how much of the symbolism actually matches up. Who knows? But I just think it's interesting. There's so much in the symbolism of his birth that in some ways kind of symbolizes what's coming in his death. And then a rebirth. Because <coughs> if we're going to symbolize that we're going to go down into the grave with him, that's going to be symbolic of our new birth. And we're going to come up out of water. And then we're going to take you know, we're going to take the sacrament that is representative of his blood and stuff like that. I just think it's, yeah, yeah. Uh, this also reminds me of this daytime where the sun, we call it the sun. Oh, yeah. Uh, the sun rises and then the sun goes down. And we know that the sun will come back maybe kind of that. Tomorrow. So we'll still atone for our sin, sins that we make tomorrow. I don't know. Um, but it reminds me, I learned some, at some point, there's this, Jewish form of poetry that's the yeah. same at the front. As Ch- chiasmus, yeah. Chiasmus. Um, and this same idea is what's that? Do you know? I hadn't thought of that, but that his birth would be like a chiastic. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Okay, you know what we're talking about with chiasmus, where, where we've got. Uh, the Book of Mormon has the same kind of pattern in there. But yeah, his birth would actually be a chiastic kind of thing. That's, I have to think about that one. That's good. All right. So, so part of, again, what we're trying to look at when we look at the symbols of nativity and the symbols of his birth is what it means to us. The beautiful thing about symbols and symbolism is the fact that we get to incorporate that in a certain way to our own lives. We have our own birth. We have our own death. Uh, and what happens between the bookends is what we do with our life. Uh, and so if we look at, we're going to get more particular here. Let, let's go to, um, This is uh, uh, Helaman 16. And we're rolling down the last stretch towards uh, the birth of the Savior and people begin to harden their hearts. And I love this. Listen to the way as, as the signs are coming, think about the signs of maybe like a second coming, but certainly the signs of this first coming. Um... Angels are speaking, um, some, 16, some, some things they may have guessed right among so many, you know, even a broken clock is right twice a year, right? Yes, that too. <laughs> among so many, but behold, we know that all these great marvelous works cannot come to pass of which has been spoken. So there's, there's some cool things going on, there are some signs, there might be a star, but they're getting lucky. And then they begin to reason and contend among themselves, saying what? It's not reasonable. No, there's nothing in 
It's part of what Tom Holland is trying to say as he looks at the history of Christianity. There's nothing reasonable about this. This is, this is so unusual and should not have happened. There's nothing reasonable about this. It is not reasonable that such a being as a Christ shall come. And if so, if he be the Son of God and the Father of heaven and earth as has been spoken, and then listen to this one, why will he not show himself unto us as well as those who be at Jerusalem? So what are they appealing to? Pride. Pride. Yeah. Aren't we as good as they are? If this thing is really happening, we've got... They, they start out with what's reasonable, and when he shows himself to Jerusalem, it's not like, hi, here I am, take a picture. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be here for 33 years and then die on the cross. Yeah. Which they're not necessarily really getting that, are they? be in two places at the same time. Yeah, yeah. If he's if he's this great, if he was going to do that, then he'd be in every community. Yeah, yeah. And why will he not show unto us as well as them that be at Jerusalem? Aren't we as good? What's what's you know? It is that. Well, yeah, we're just as good. Why didn't we, you know? They're working off of that pride button. You push the pride button. Yeah, huh? I never thought of that. You're right. That's not reasonable. Okay? Now, but here, here's, we're going to draw the conclusion, though. Yeah, we know that this is a wicked tradition, which has been handed down by our fathers to cause us to believe in some greater marvelous thing which should come to pass, but not among us, but in a land that's far distant. Do you know something? Do you realize how many more people would join the church if we still had the gold plates? <laughs> wouldn't that help we just had here's the gold plates here they are Joseph said he had the gold plates here's the gold plates and this is where I got them from so what happens as a missionary or somebody when you're talking to somebody and go well where are the gold plates oh the angel took them back that's so convenient yeah yeah because it's not reasonable that's faith if we just had the plates then we could we could prove this thing and we could translate this thing and then we would know for ourselves by the way nobody knows reformed egyptian but it's a little convenient you guys don't have the gold plates right just, just a thought when you get into that kind of stuff. A few years ago, my wife and I were at a fireside in of Bednar, and he answered that really well. There was a Q&A fireside. He gave us a lot yeah. of questions. Right. And he says, all questions are good. For example, if you want, you can ask me what the sort of labor is. And I will tell you that's a very good question. <laughs> then I will tell you I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But if you're trying to if you're trying to appeal to a certain group of people, this works. We know this is wicked tradition has been handed down, something that we're not going to be able to see in a land far distant. That therefore, but now but now look at where the conclusion goes to. Why are they doing this? Therefore, they can keep us in ignorance. Therefore, we cannot witness with our own eyes, which is true. And they will, by the cunning and mysterious arts of the evil one, work some great mystery, which we can't understand, which will, what? Keep us down to be servants to their words. And also servants unto them. For we depend upon them, yeah, right, uh, to, to teach us the word, and thus they will keep us in ignorance if we will yield ourselves to them all of our lives. Uh, and many more things that the people imagine. Um, in other words, they said the reason that you don't, that it's happening on the other side of the world where you can't believe it is so that they can do what? It's about, it's about control. Which is one of those things that one of the, one of the uh, criticisms that's constantly leveled against religious organizations all the way through. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes it has been about control. I'm not going to argue that. But, if, but there's always been a battle of they want to control you and you're going to be controlled by having you believe in something you can't see. And that's... that's and, and guess what? We, we're going to say, yeah, we are going to believe in something we can't see. Question? Yeah. 
I'm not good at remembering. <laughs> Join the club. <laughs> there was a guy shortly after Joseph's committed who claimed to have found some records underneath the tree and there were roots all around it. We had witnesses who said he was directed on to dig it up and it was surrounded by roots. So he and, uh, and also had, well, I think he didn't also have like a, like a, a heavenly, not a heavenly messenger, but some kind of supernatural protector. I don't know, but if you like the law of the Lord, and he started a, a small group that. Are you thinking? Obviously, a, a Joseph Smith imitator. Yeah. And it didn't succeed, and yet he had, he had it there. Oh, that's a great point. That's a great. That's a great point. That 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 pattern should work. I remember the story, but you're right; it didn't didn't work. Well, there's Solomon's the 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 history of the Hebrews, but this isn't that because they, the history of the Hebrews, was out there for a long time by Spalding, and then we found it like, a hundred years ago, and go, oh, it's like Dr. Seuss. It can't, yeah. Well, unless we get to, Audie and our, us, there are a lot of members of the church that spend a lot of time. Trying to prove going to South America, the Book of Mormon to be true. Yeah, that's right, and they're and they're wrong because they're in the wrong places. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's El Mirador. Don't don't. That's there, Hemla. I think it's just human nature to try <laughs> to, to want to know why. To know why and how, and that's how these legends get built up. Because we we want to fill with information. Yeah, what what we, what we don't, don't know. What we don't have. Boy, is that true. Another good example uh, that when you first started the lesson, uh, the legend of the the phone Paul Revere's ride. Oh yeah. Totally inaccurate. Yeah, but totally inspirational. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, it, and it goes into this whole idea of composition of art and everything. Yeah. That. It, it worked for the poem, for the guy who was writing the poem for a long time. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, art composition has a lot to do with proportions and where you place figures and colors and composition and all that. Yeah, well, and, and I, will, I will say this, because I think here's the challenge to all of this. And it is a real challenge that that we want we look at things like this and it's devotional and and we're inspired by it but it all, we always run the, we always run the risk of then saying if if our if our testimony is going to be based on this inspirational thing we're really running the risk of saying then when the real details come out um, I think I, I don't know if I told the story last time or I was thinking about telling it um, a few years ago, I was doing some studying about Carthage and stuff like that in a gospel doctrine class. I mentioned the fact that uh, John Taylor had, as the shots were being fired, that he, Joseph tells him to get back, and as, he's, as, as Taylor is moving back from the door, he gets hit in his hip from a shot fired from outside. And it really took out a big chunk of his hip, caused him to limp for years after. It spun him around. Uh, no, it came from the door. Because it spun him around, and it drove him against the, uh, the, the window sill there. And as he did, it cracked his watch. And, and then he, he fell down, and he crawled underneath the bed, until uh, Willard Richards is going to grab him and drag him into the back jail part of the Liberty Jail. Well, years later, he he would tell people all the time about his watch, and we've you've, you guys have seen the watch, right? It's in the Church History Museum. You can see it. Uh, it's still cracked at five oh five eleven or something like that. Shortly after, we know what time the thing happened because of his watch, and it got broken. But he believed that the watch had stopped a bullet. And that had saved his life. Well, as it turned out, the size of the balls that were being shot, there's no way that a watch was going to do that. And we know now that most likely, and, and even church historians are saying, yeah, he cracked it when he fell against. Okay? Now, I, I, I told that story in a gospel doctrine class a few years ago, and we had uh, 
an older woman on the front row and she goes, oh, don't take that story. <laughs> that had been one of, the, one of her favorite stories that he had been saved by her watch, his watch stopped a bullet. And I know, I know we have the devotional inspirational things. Uh, and again, we can get so much, so caught up in those kind of things. Yeah. I, I know I'm too logical for my own. Let's see, reasonable? No. <laughs> my, Vicki, my wife, I knew of some people that were converted to the church, at least they tell the story that they found a Book of Mormon in the ocean on the shore, right? And it was still floating. It had been there for weeks probably, and there's no good reason why it was still floating, and they were converted. Right? Yeah. And so I... I went to our above-ground pool. <laughs> Did you really? <laughs> Did the Book of Mormons float? But no, I also had this book that at the end of my mission, some Hare Krishnas greeted us at the airport. So you got a Hare Krishna book, and you're going to put. The I would recognize them because I said you have an important message. I'm willing to listen to. Sure. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And she gave me this big, thick, nice book that I started reading and it made no sense to me. But anyway, <laughs> I put them both in our pool and oh, they no. both floated for, for days and days and days. Okay, so and <laughs> it upset Vicki because it destroyed her story. <laughs> but also the rest of the story, you said those people that were converted they eventually left the church, right? Yeah, but then, then they came back. Oh, they did. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's, yes. <laughs> no, I, I... It really had to do with how waxy the pages are, obviously. Uh, the, the composition. Did, did any of you, some of you guys are old enough. Do, do you remember, what, what, was the, what was the name of that big, thick book that you could get at Deseret Book and it was filled with faith promoting rumors. Uh, it was like stories for, you could use it for, especially for Mormons. Yeah, that's, that's the one. Yeah. Yeah. And then there was the other one by Dwayne Crowther, uh, Life Everlasting, I think. There was like all these faith promoting things about what people go on the other side of the veil and of course it looks just like, you know. And, and it's a it's a tender it's a tenuous place to be when you start to to see some of the logical stuff, and and that's why you you roll back to faith, and and you're trying to see through the symbolism to what you're being taught. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think I've had this discussion with other people before, and in some school class. I just think that so many of us, and maybe I've been that way too at times, just want excitement. You want it to be more interesting. A little more thrilling than it actually is. It actually is. You know, and you want to get into this stuff. And um, to me, the gospel is exciting enough. I mean, a first vision. I mean, I would convert that. I had to learn. That was kind of cool, right? And, uh, and, the, and the Book of Mormon and all of that. But it's, that, it's not just the church. It's the world. It's yeah. society. Conspiracy theories. And bad things just can't happen or had to be. Well, that was, that's what Paul was saying at Mars Hill, is that you guys, in, uh, the Greeks, you're just running after the next exciting thing. You just want to be titillated. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we can get caught in that titillation exercise. Yeah. I was going to say, back to that original picture you had, before you went to all this explanation, uh -huh. the convert, that was my picture, type yeah. of picture. Yeah. That's all I knew. Uh, of, of the nativity? Or? Nativity. Yes. I didn't know about all this other stuff that, that I've learned over the years. Yeah. And so with a childlike look, that's all I knew about God sure. and Christ. Yeah. And if we look at it through a child's eye, because that's what we teach our kids. We don't go through this... They're not ready for all this explanation. No, and no. And so, even if it's got this really big, long thing, this is what we focus on. Yeah. It's our faith that there is Christ. Yeah. And these people came to see him. Yeah. And we often forget that because of all the stuff we might know now. Yeah, or that we're going to get caught in kind of the skeptical side of it. Because, see, that's the beautiful message right, is that... In some ways, we know that, that wise men came to visit him. We know that shepherds were there in some capacity, that, that Christ the Lamb 
was visited by shepherds, I think it's just incredibly cool. Where it was doesn't matter to me nearly as much as that message. It happened. That it, that it happened. And that's what we teach our children. Yeah. Our yeah. And I think we can do that without having to go too far into... I mean, you've got to admit, though, the, the story of the midwife who, who d the delivers the baby, delivers <laughs> Jesus with a withered hand, and then is healed is... <laughs> Yeah. Pretty spectacular. Yeah. So my husband and I have often discussed that many of the, uh, shall we say, stories uh, in the various scriptures may be more allegorical than true. Yeah. And I, I find people find that so challenging. And so that what my sisters just said about, but isn't it just more about our devotion and less about the details? And while I enjoy the details and I like to speculate as well as the next person, and while I would not have flowed in any books, I would have <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's worth trying, right? Night, and smile gently and backed away. Right. So uh, we get so caught up in it. And while I love discussing it and looking at it and saying, well, actually, yeah. and, you know, I love that. but. The truth, the actual truth, the inside—the—the—what the, the symbol is teaching you. Mm -hmm. That's what. Yeah, and and I guess that's what I'm pleading for. Is yeah. I, I think it's true. We we do know a lot of stuff. Historians can tell us a lot of stuff, but when we get to this point, because ultimately what we're getting to, uh, listen to what the Savior is going to say to Nephi. You know, people are going to be destroyed, and he's basically going to say. Lift up your head and be of good cheer. For behold, the time is at hand. On this night shall the sign be given, that full light. And on the morrow I come into the world to show unto the world that I will fulfill. Uh, for, he's going to say two things. I fulfill all that has been caused to be spoken by the mouth of the holy prophets. Uh, and, and I love this phrase. Uh, this one right there. <coughs> And he says it twice. Behold, I come unto my own to fulfill all the things that have been known unto the children of men. Um, and on this night will the sign be given. And then he's going to repeat that phrase again. Um, where's, it? where's the second? He says it twice. Anyway, he's going to say, I come unto my own. Meaning what? I come unto my own. As the believer. Yeah. The and he was uh, dedicated to the Jews first. Yeah. You know, and he did not go teach to them. He sent the after he passed, you know, and he sent them the apostles and Paul in particular to the Gentiles. Yeah, I love I love the phrase I think it's in a little town of Bethlehem that it talks about how um, that that believers with believing hearts, it says the dear Christ enters in. That in a sense, we, we ourselves have a guest room <laughs> and, and in, in us. And, and at this time of year, as you kind of, the, kind of the magic of Christmas, I think, is that you allow Christ to enter in. We, we, his spirit, his, the, the magic of this, the miracle of this, I think is just really, really, really cool. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot lately. You know, Jesus was born. He didn't have to be born. He could have somehow appeared on this holy ground and started his ministry. Possible. But uh, I think it's so important that he started as a baby and came down. And you know, the swaddling clothes, I don't know about swaddling clothes, it isn't like a onesie, it's a special kind of wrap. My daughter had to. Uh, her son had horrible colic, and the babysitter had been a nanny in England, and she says, this baby needs to be swaddled. Yeah, and just for, roll it for tight. a long time, he was swaddled, and it's becoming more and more used now mm -hmm. for babies who have colic, and it just changed everything. Yeah. And he had to be, that baby was dependent upon good people to take care of him, and all through, and at his death, good people took care of him. Just like the rest of us, I think it's just it's just interesting to me. That, uh, there's a, a, a minister who wrote a book called The Dirty Jesus. 
don't know. Kind of talking about the Jesus who sweat <laughs> and the Jesus that walked down dusty roads and got dirty. You know, and the, the Jesus that might have got a bad, got the flu <laughs> and might have been throwing up. And, you know, that he lived a mortal experience with all of those kind of things. Mary is changing dirty diapers, you know, and you just, to, to go through those kind of experiences uh, made, made uh, and the fact that the creator of the world that can hold, uh, he says, I, I hold the mountains in my hands, you know, and I hold the seas. And I, and I look on, I, I look at uh, Isaiah 40, where he's talking about he sits on the edge, the curve of the earth, and just looks down at the, all this, that he would allow himself to be born into mortality and be a toddler, <laughs> you know, and be teething. And uh, yeah, and, and how, how much of a condescension is that to come and experience all those? You know, like one of the questions I ask a lot is, how many of you guys would like to be 13 again? Yeah, no, we're just dropping you right in at 13 we're, with a voice that changes and, you know, and we go through those awkward periods of our life. Jesus did that. You know, he had those moments, you know, and, and that when we think about condescension to him to live a mortal life is just amazing. It was necessary, though, I think, in order for us to have faith in him. Yeah. To know that he did, he does really know our experience. Yeah, when he talks about coming into my own, he's also coming into people that experience the same thing that he experienced. So, and and uh, Alma 7 says that he would do that so that we would, he would know how to succor us. He's, he's kind of been there. So, I just think that's a miracle. So, so, to me, Christmas time is a matter of, okay, the nativity scenes are all wrong. But we enjoy them. Just let it, let it be what it is and just see the wonder of the lights and the wonder of the nativity and, and all that stuff. Uh, I don't think you have to make your nativity scene historically accurate. Just enjoy the spirit that radiates, I think, from, from that sense of nativity. So, nativity meaning beginning, right? So... All right, final comments. Yeah. When I was in South Africa, one day a black fellow came up to me and he said, when Jesus comes again, is he going to just go over to those other people or is he going to be able to come mm. to us? And to us as well. That he, Christ would be coming to, to everybody. Yeah. 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 I know time's up, but I just asked real quick, what exactly is an angel? <laughs> I mean, are they like... Wow. Us? I mean, they're not above us because we've had the chance to experience life. We're mortals, and yet we're going to be living with him, and we've got families. Angels don't. So are they below us, above us, or what? You, you, you know... Here's here's the fun part, is that if if I if if I run you through church history, you're going to have a lot. You're going to find a lot of pontificating about what angels are, what they're not, and they are this. And in some cases, these are the ones that never married in this life, so they're the single ones. They're going to spend the rest of their life ministering. And, you know, there's all kinds of stories. I think the real answer is we don't know. I mean, sometimes like a like a Gabriel or. Some of the angels that came and visited Joseph in Kirtland Temple, we could say, yeah, those had lived a mortal life and they were coming on a specific mission. Kind of a generic term, too. If you could apply to either well, people, uh, people that haven't been to the earth. It did. Or people that have Well, well yeah. Didn't Joseph Smith uh, give us guidance on how to discern Well, yeah, I know. And then we get the whole handshake thing. I know. Their hand and you feel their hands. I know. Kind of body. I know. And, and when was the last time you heard that in general conference? <laughs> you know. I know. I, I, I mean, I've. Well, I, I don't think they have any <coughs> meaning, meaningful trouble with. People. Well, and I've had people try and interpret the the temple, the temple film. This is why the angels in the temple are doing this and that, and because trying to. Okay. Sorry, there are just way too many ways that you can. Just <laughs> I know. And that's just. That's just not possible 
to go there. I mean, we are angels here on earth. There are angels who are messengers. Yes, that, that might still be living, that haven't yeah. lived nor died yet. But you know that each one of us can be angels in other people's lives. There's just way too many definitions. I know. Yeah, and I, 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 happily, I think I'm at this point in my life uh, where I think I know enough where I realize how much I don't know. <laughs> you know, where I've learned enough to say, that is a super question without, without really an answer. Is that sometimes angels are going to be our, yeah, the, yes, right, that could be, our, could be our ancestors, it could be people who have gone before us, it could be, who knows. But the angels end up being uh, ministers of a good news and they witness Christ in some way. And how they do that is a good question, yeah. If an angel appeared to me, I'd be so overwhelmed. I wouldn't remember whether or not I was supposed to shake their head or wish them. Wait a minute, I've got to go look it up. Which one? Hugh Nibley tells the story of visiting his grandfather, Charles Nibley, and, and Charles Nibley felt really bad that he'd cut down like redwood trees to help build things. And he's having like this mortal conscience and stuff. He says, if an angel came and visited me today, I'd jump right out that window. <laughs> 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 and, and young Hugh never kind of forgot that in kind of some of his environmental look at things. So anyway, um, guys, I... Thank you for a, uh, for a wonderful uh, semester. Thank you for uh, a wonderful class, for being here and those asking deep questions and floating Book of Mormons and stuff. It just <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, normally, you know, I, Cindy and I were talking about this on the way. In, in past years when we had a, before COVID and, we, and the class was much bigger, we would always finish a semester with kind of a, a uh, holiday dinner. Uh, we're, we're getting bigger. If we get much bigger beyond where we are, we may do that next semester, finish with kind of a little banquet thing at the end, which would be really kind of fun, kind of celebrate what we've done. So I hope you have a, a great Christmas. Um, enjoy this time of the year. Enjoy the magic, and don't get caught up in the logic. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, so, Someone got a closing prayer for us? So <coughs> moved? Good. Thanks. Our dear Father. And thank you for joining us for another Monday morning class. Hope you enjoyed it. If you have any suggestions about future topics that we could discuss, or if you had any questions concerning something that you heard in the class, please drop us a note. We'd love to hear from you. As always, if you happen to be in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, please come in and join us on a Monday morning. We'd love to see you and identify who you are. If the podcast itself is resonating with you, go ahead and click subscribe uh, so that Apple can figure out where we are. We'd love to, to hear from you. So again, thank you for coming, and we'll see you for another Monday morning class.